You're listening to Speaking with Deacon, Episode 6, Apologetics 101. Speaking with Deacon is a production of the Perusia Podcast Network in partnership with Voice of Charity Australia and EWTN Asia Pacific. Join us as we discuss strategies that will empower us to announce the gospel of the Lord daily through our words and deeds. This is Speaking with Deacon. Hello and thanks for joining us here on Speaking with Deacon. I'm Mark Griffin, your host, and as always, joining me is Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers. Deacon, how are you today? I'm doing well, Mark. It's great to be here with you. And since I can't be there in person, I just use a little background to uh, re- remind me of my wonderful experiences there in Australia. That's it. I think you might have uh, gotten a few people here in Sydney excited thinking that you were actually here down under, but that is just a a virtual background on your screen. And for those just listening on the podcast, they can't see that. But yeah, that is a a very well-known scene here in Sydney. So yeah, we we can't wait till you do get back down under though to to, to spend some time with us. So we're looking forward to that opportunity when, when it arises. Yeah, I am too. I'm very much looking forward to going back overseas again. And, and I was saying with you, uh, as, as you brought that picture up before we hit record, that it's not a realistic picture. Today, as we record this, the rain here in Sydney is torrential. So it definitely wouldn't look like that here today if you were out there. So, <laughs> but, uh, but no, can't, can't wait to get you back down under. Now, today we're going to speak on a topic, the topic of apologetics. Now, in our very first episode, we talked about evangelization. And you mentioned in your, your strategy to be an effective evangelist, one of your, your, your points within that is to be good at apologetics, to learn apologetics, to learn how to share apologetics with the world and defend our faith. And that call to be an effective apologist comes from 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you. So we're going to unpack a little bit today on how to do that why we need to do that, and then go through a few examples of apologetics in action. So are you ready to go, Deacon? Absolutely. Sounds great. Let's go then. So number one, can you uh, please give us a definition? What is apologetics and what is an apologist? Yeah. So uh, apologetics doesn't mean apologizing for being Catholic. <laughs> right? Some people may think that, but that's not what it is all. what it is at all. It comes from a Greek word, apologia, which means defense. So it means to defend the faith. For for example, um, there's a a famous book uh, written back in antiquity called Plato's Apology, right? Uh, That's Plato's defense of Socrates. So, and it's called an apology. He's not apologizing for Socrates. He's defending the thought of Socrates, right? So he wrote this this defense. It's called an apology. So an apologist is the person who defends the faith, Right. And so this defense of the faith is not evangelization, right? Because evangelization is about witnessing the power of, of, of God's love um, to be an effective messenger of the faith. Again, you know, through um, storytelling, through personal experience, through knowledge of how God is working your life. Um, but also apologetics is part of that, you know, because you have to understand the faith in order to, to you know, to, to connect you more deeply to how the Lord is working because it's the mind and the heart. So apologetics is more focusing on the intellectual uh, understanding of the faith, which connects the evangelization is more as the heart connection with the faith. And they kind of both work together to give you a complete picture of how we present the faith to those who are not Catholic, either those who are attacked to Catholic faith, or even those who just want to learn more about the Catholic faith and why, and even for current Catholics, why do we believe what we believe? And this is crucial, Mark, because there's such a disconnect with our young people between the faith and their everyday lived experience. Sure. You know, there's a disconnect. Well, why do I believe this? And why do I have to go to church? And why, uh, why is the mass important? Why can't I just, why do I have to go to a priest to have my sins forgiven? Why can't I just pray to Jesus and my sins are forgiven? I mean, so all these kinds of things come up and we need to be able to give answers uh, as to why, we believe what we, what is the basis? Is it in scripture? Is it part of the, the, the teachings of Jesus Christ himself? Were these things that Jesus handed on to the apostles, the apostles now handing on to us? Uh, and those, those are big questions. And apologetics helps us to, to answer those questions. 
It feels like in the world today, there's been a bit of a revival in apologetics and, and the number of apologists who are actually out there publicly defending the faith. But it seems like there still aren't that many. So if a revival is still not too many, where have we been on this front for so long? And why does it feel like this is something that has been missing? And, and, yeah, and that, that's, how do we get there? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Now, back in the day, Mark, um, the Catholic Church, you know, kind of said, well, you know, the, 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 the clergy, right? Back, back then, you know, they weren't even... Uh, um, the permanent, the, the act was not restored as a permanent order yet. Uh -huh. Right. So it was the priests who were the ones who talked about the faith. It was the priests who were the ones who defended the faith and the lay people just kind of just said, okay, you know, they did, they did not encourage Bible study, right. You just, you just learn from the priest. So the priests were the ones who were the professional defenders of the faith. Um, but what we've seen is that, you know, the bishops and priests, well, there was a shift after the second Vatican council, not saying that bishops and priests shouldn't still be the leaders in, in, in defending the faith, but now it should be more open to lay people as well. Right. And so this, this, um, this effort in order to encourage people to learn more about the scriptures, to connect the scriptures more deeply to the everyday lived experience, to increase our knowledge of our Catholic faith and why we believe what we believe. And then we started seeing more, um, lay people at first, mostly uni professors, right? Kind of the, the theologians, the, the lay theologians were the one who were kind of picking up the apologetics call. Um, and then we even started seeing a rift though, even within the theologians themselves, right? We saw some that were more orthodox theologians and we saw some that were more uh, non-orthodox, you know, that weren't teaching, that were teaching uh, theology based on not what the church teaches, not rooted in sacred tradition or sacred scripture, but their kind of own, their own take on it, their own, um, their own uh, uh, constructive thought about uh, what theology is and what theology should be doing. And so they, they kind of became disassociated from an orthodox presentation of the faith. And so then the next big thing we saw was the, the, the rise of Catholic Answers and other lay apologetics organizations that trains uh, and encourages laity to, to learn more about the faith. So we have professional organizations like Catholics United for the Faith. And the, the most popular one, obviously, is Catholic Answers. Then we saw EWTN, right? Then we see, so we saw this growth now uh, of, of media and of organizations that really encourage people to learn more about their faith and to connect them more deeply to the faith, which ultimately connects them more deeply to intimacy with Jesus Christ. You actually raise an interesting question. This wasn't something I'd planned to, to put to you, but just while we're on the topic, you're talking about lay organizations. So these are businesses. So if the gospel yes. was shared freely with us, why is it appropriate for a business to go and share the gospel further? And I'm not necessarily, I'm playing devil's advocate here a little bit. I don't, yeah. I don't believe this thought, but this is a question I've heard come up quite a number of times is a career Catholic. Is that a good thing? Well, this is the thing. Uh, if, if you look in, in the scriptures, what St. Paul says, right, that God gives different gifts to different people and they're expected to exercise that ministry, that ministry and the worker is due his wages. It says in the scriptures, right? So if you're doing the work of the Lord, you know, you're not doing it primarily for money. Um, but if God has called you to do that kind of work, um, then the, the, the worker deserves their, their fair wages. And that's what we're, that's what we're seeing here. It's no different than a Catholic school teacher. Right. I mean, yeah. before there were nuns and priests who were the ones who were the teachers. Now is the, the shift has gone completely the other way. The vast majority of teachers are lay people that have families that need to support themselves. And so the tuition that they pay to get the Catholic education helps to fund um, and, and pay for uh, those teachers who are in turn are providing for their families. And so, yeah. And, and, and so that's what these organizations are designed for. Again, they're not designed to be like, um, you know, IBM, you know, or some, or some massive, you know, uh, corporate conglomerate, you know, uh, where they're hiring tens of millions of people and Apple or Microsoft or something like that. These are organizations that are professional organizations 
Um, and these people that work for the organizations have dedicated their lives to helping to promote the message of Jesus Christ. And so, um, and they're offering their products and services and, and, and they need to be paid for that. I mean, Perusian Media is a good example of that, right? I mean, you work for an organization, you're being paid, yes. you know, to, to help spread the gospel. And that's what I do for a living. Yes. You know, and I, I don't do it primarily for the money. I do it because God has called me to do this. And since God has called me to do this, he's provided a way for me to be able to take care of my family. Yeah. You know, and that, that's really what's going on there. No, that's beautiful. You've actually answered that very clearly. So I, I hope that does put that argument to rest that, no, this is just a profiteering off, off the Catholic faith because it really isn't. And and I know speaking from our own experience here at Perusia, like w- whenever we do have a little bit of money, it just gets invested straight back into resources or, or, or other technologies or whatever to help us advance the message. So, yeah, I, th- I think anyone that's working at Perusia or many, many of these organizations can probably make a lot more money doing the same work for a, a, a different style of organization but there's also that mission aspect to it so sure we do charge for resources but that's because nothing comes for free and to get that into someone's hand someone has to pay for something and so we try and sort of share that that expense along the way so yeah i think you've answered that very well though no that's great um back to the apologists themselves what makes a good apologist what do you need to be a good effective yeah to be a good effective apologist yeah, you have to have a desire to learn about the Catholic faith. You know, so for example, um, if you're riding in your car and you're going to be in the car for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, okay, that's what I call gap time. There, these are gaps or spaces in your day. And what do we fill them with, right? So I'm on planes all the time. So as I'm waiting to get yet on another plane, as I'm sitting there at the gate, waiting to board another plane as I'm waiting for everybody to get on the plane and make all these safety announcements. What am I listening to? What am I filling my time with? Same thing. If you're driving in a car or if you're cooking dinner, you're waiting for dinner, you know, that hour and a half, whatever for dinner to be ready. What are you doing with that time? I, I think a good apologist will fill those gaps, fill those spaces with uh, opportunities to learn and grow in the faith. So for example, you know, we've we've entered the season of Lent now, as you may say to yourself, as you're driving in the car, you get ready to, to go somewhere. You know what? I don't know a whole lot about indulgences. You know, I, I hear that about indulgences. Wasn't that the thing that Luther got all upset about? And didn't the church sell indulgences, which the church never did, by the way. But did the church sell indulgences? And, and, and you know, I should probably learn more about that because it because why? What, what authority does the, the church have to even grant an indulgence, you know? And, and what is that relationship between indulgence and purgatory? You know, gosh, I, I should learn more about it. And, what, and so you stick a La Perusia Media USB in your car or a CD, and you learn in those 20 or 30 minutes about the faith. That's what a good apologist does. Uh, uses their time, these spaces in their day, to fill it with learn to, to learn more about something about the faith to go deeper. Um, and now with the, with apps on the phone, you can download uh, 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 previous episodes of Catholic answers or, or uh, Perusia world or what, you know, all the different programs that are being offered by Perusia and so many others apps. And so, I mean, there's no excuse uh, you know, not be able to fill that time instead of listening to political talk radio or listening to sports. What about using that time to grow closer to God? Uh, so that's one uh, thing. I think the other thing apologists has to do is they have to actually live the faith. So, so you don't want, you don't want apologetics to become an intellectual exercise. You don't want apologetics to become like algebra. A lot of kids learn algebra and they will never use algebra. And well, why do I have to learn it? Well, you learn it because algebra helps you to think critically, analytically, and logically. Right. That's that's why you learn algebra, even though you'll never use it unless you're going to be an engineer or something like that or math professor. You'll never use it, but it trains your mind and trains parts of your mind to work a certain way. Um, I think for the apologist, it can't just be all in the head. There has to be the connection between the head and the heart. So the, the, the a good apologist has to live a good 
Catholic life. That means you have to go to mass and go to confession and go to adoration and pray the rosary and pray the chaplain of divine mercy and pray novenas and really live an authentic Catholic life to, 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 you know, if you're married to love your wife as Christ loved the church, you know, to, to give your life and die for your family, to not, to, 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 to live that sacrificial life uh, from the heart united with the knowledge that we're learning in apologetics with the head. I think that actually makes the best apologist having the will and desire to learn and to grow connected with the, with the living out of that faith in a very real way every single day. A good uh, tip that I heard from a presentation I heard from Trent Horn from Catholic Answers that you mentioned before in, in, in a presentation he gives, he mentions that a really good answer for an apologist is I don't know. So long as it's followed by, but I'll go and find out and get back to you. Yep, there you and, go. And, Very and being honest. able to admit, in all honesty, I don't have an answer for that. Doesn't mean there isn't one. I will go and do my research and come back to you. I think that's a really there's there's humility in that that is actually very powerful as well, isn't there? No, oh, absolutely, right? Because humility doesn't mean thinking less of yourself. It means thinking of yourself less, right? And so yes. just saying, you know, I know, and, and just having the confidence that the church has an answer. You know, and you may not know it right now, but the church has an answer. Just saying, you know what? That is a great question. You know, and, you know, I actually want to learn more about that myself. Give me an opportunity to learn more and I'll, and I'll come back with an answer for you. And what and what uh, what else does that do? It continues the discussion. Right. Because here's what you want, Mark. What you don't want to do when you're doing apologetics. You don't want to get into arguments with people. You don't want to um, proselytize. That means you're, you're actively working to convert the person. You're there um, to encounter that person where they are, wherever they are on their journey. They may be an atheist. They may be somebody who was Catholic, but maybe through a tragedy, you know, the death of a spouse, the death of a, a child, they blamed God and left the faith. You know, maybe they're a Protestant investigating the Catholic faith. The last thing you want to do is to sound like an intellectual bully. Like, let me tell you why you should be Catholic, because what you do and you end up doing, Mark, is pushing people away. And that's not the goal. The goal is this. How do I get the person standing in front of me to want to listen to more of what I have to say? That's what an effective apologist does. And so by exercising that humility of, you know what, I don't know the answer, but let me get back to you. That extends the conversation. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that continues the discussion. Because ultimately, as, as I've heard many people say, it's about winning souls, not winning arguments. It's not about proving That's your correct. point. It's about reaching out to that soul and, and helping them, where, as, as you say, wherever they're at in life. It, you, you can't necessarily convert them the first interaction. It's about throwing the seeds and then letting the Holy Spirit help them grow, isn't it? Yeah, it's really, uh, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's almost a very introductory phase. The apologist is sort of the introduction to a concept, to, a, to an idea, to a, to a truth, but they don't have to be the one that, that seals the deal there and then on the spot. Yeah, exactly. I'll I, I give, give you an example, Mark. Um, I'm not sure if you were there for that talk, but I, I gave a talk there and I actually got an email a Facebook email from uh, a woman afterward. But during one of my talks, um, uh, a Muslim gentleman um, took objection to something I said about the Quran. Now um, I had, all I did was, was uh, I paraphrased because I've read the Quran and, and I paraphrased something that was in there about women. And I, I thought I was, I, my point was, I was saying, I thought the Catholic church had the best understanding of theology of femininity and womanhood. And I was giving some examples from Buddhism and Hinduism. And I, and I, and I paraphrased the surat from the Quran. And this gentleman got upset. And um, uh, he said that I, that, you know, I should, I, I should not read the Quran in English. I need to read it in Arabic. And, um, uh, and he said that, um, you know, uh, that I was, I was in misinterpreting it. I said, no, I said, I said, just tell us what it says. And he said that, um, he goes, you don't have to hit her that hard because they said you can strike a woman if you believe she did something wrong. I was like, yikes, you know? And so, um, people started reacting to that. And so he started getting angry. So I said, look, I need to finish this talk. I think it was in the punch bowl, um, at that, um, 
at that Maronite church there. Sure. And I said, look, I need, I need to finish this talk. L let's do this. Um, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. If you can answer these questions for me right now, I will stop the talk and continue to engage you. If not, then if you can please, you know, sit down. And I promise I will talk to you for as long as you want after the, the, the I'm finished. And he, he agreed to that. And so I said to them, I said, I, I said, I apologize for reading the Quran in English. Um, but in the Quran, it says that Jesus does miracles and Muhammad does none. Now, Jesus is considered a much lesser prophet than Muhammad. But yet in your holy book, Jesus does miracles. Muhammad does none. How can Muhammad be more powerful than Jesus? Then I said, uh, I, I also noticed in there that the only woman mentioned by name in the entire Quran is Miriam, Mary, the mother of Jesus, who's actually spoken of with great respect. I said, Muhammad's mother, nor any of his wives, including his favorite wives, Fatima and Khadijah, are not mentioned at all in the Quran. Only the mother of Jesus is mentioned. Right? And then, if I mean, I could have went, I could have said the Quran says that Jesus is coming back at the end of the time, not Muhammad. Jesus is coming back. Then why is Jesus coming back and not Muhammad? Yeah. I mean, so you, you see, so, so my approach in that situation was not to attack, not to belittle, but to ask questions. Right. And, and that's called the Socratic method, you know, uh, asking questions in order to to have the person think and go deeper and think about what the response is, what the response is going to be. And the gentleman had no response. And so he sat down. And so at the end, I was looking, looking, looking. I, I was asking, but did you see that gentleman? I want to make sure I talked to him and he and, and no one saw him. So he left. But several months later, Mark, I got a Facebook email from a woman who said that she was not there, but her husband and her and uh, her daughter uh, were there and they brought a non-practicing Muslim friend. That means that that young man saw the interaction that I had with this Muslim gentleman. Uh -huh. He said he bought 13 of my CDs produced by Perusia. He bought 13 CDs, came home, downloaded them onto his phone and had been listening for the past several months. And he just told them uh, the day that she emailed me that he wants to become Catholic. He's going to go to RCIA and become a Catholic. Praise so, God. Wow. So see, so, it's 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 not about, oh, you know, I convert you. We can't convert anybody. Yes. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. We just have to be faithful. Like Jesus says, the parable of the sower and throw the seeds. So all I did was throw some seeds. I did not. I did not try to belittle that man. I did not try to outsmart him. I all I did was simply ask some honest questions from my observations in, in order to better understand where he was coming from. But but that was an apologetics technique, right? I was defending the faith, you know, but 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 not by attacking his faith, but by but trying to understand his faith by asking some questions. And and in this case, he had he had no answers to them. It's a little bit like that um, that old police show Columbo, and I I only ever watched a couple of episodes. I couldn't ever really get into it. But it's a little bit like that from the perspective of you know at the start of each episode who the criminal is here and the whole episode is formulated around Columbo trying to make his case and he's got a very Socratic approach to how he does that and everything it's never an accusation it's always a question and then another question and he, he asks the right questions until such time as the culprit implicates themselves and and they know that he's onto them and that there's no way out of this but he doesn't even have to make the accusation because it's all in the question and then the, the truth comes out. And I think the same thing in apologetics, if we ask the correct questions and we lead the conversation with questions, so we're not actually standing there pontificating to anyone, we're not pointing the finger at anyone, we are just saying, have you considered this? What do you know of that? What is your understanding of this? And let them actually do all the talking, but you're still directing the conversation. It's actually all coming from them. And it clicks that, hang on, all this stuff that I, all these little bits that I might have known, this person in front of me now asking me questions is now putting this all together with with me, and and then it all makes sense to them. And it doesn't necessarily happen in one conversation, of course, but yeah, that Socratic approach is a very powerful tool.
Yeah, it is. And again, it's, it should not be used as a tool in order to win an argument. Because, yeah, say, say you get to someone, it gets a little bit heated and, and you made your point. OK, you you quote unquote won, but you lost because the person's further away from when you started. You've gained nothing. Right. So, so. so we got we got to be conscious of that, that we should not use an apologetics as a weapon um, in order to, um, you know, as we think we're trying to do something good by bringing somebody into the church. Again, we can't do that. Our job is to simply throw the seeds of faith and yeah. let and let the Holy Spirit work. If we're if we're genuinely sharing the truth, we want that truth to be embraced, not resented. So, yeah, exactly. Well, it's the truth in love, right? Ephesians 4, yes. 15. Paul says, preach the truth in love, right? And so there's a very clear. Paul encourages a certain way to present the truth. Yeah, absolutely. So what, what we might do now, we might actually do a bit of apologetics in practice. I'm going to raise to you just a couple of common objections to the faith or concerns with the faith. And maybe you can demonstrate for us a good model or a good way to answer these common ones. And then as people begin practicing on these, these common objections that people are going to get left, right and center, they can then learn and develop techniques that they can then use to actually facilitate apologetics in other areas as well. So, so let's sure. start with a, a very common one. What is the Catholic church? Why is the Catholic church the one true church? And why do we consider Peter Christ appointed to the head of this church, as opposed to so many other Christian denominations out there that don't acknowledge the Pope as, as its head. And, and even, and we might even at the same time tackle things like tradition versus scripture alone, because obviously they're, they're very, they're very related there. Why is it that the Catholic church uses scripture and tradition, whereas some Protestant churches say sola scriptura, all you need is the, the scriptures and that's our guide. So there's a bit there, but uh, there's a, there's a lot there. Okay. Let, let's, let's, let's take these one at a time. First of all, why the Catholic church? And I actually got into it. I'll just share a real life situation. Uh, I was getting off a plane. And when I travel, I always wear a crucifix and a miraculous medal everywhere I go. And I was getting off a plane. And a woman came to me and said, uh, oh, I like your cross. And when she said cross and not crucifix, I knew she wasn't Catholic, but she was very, very nice. And I said, I, th I said, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And she goes, well, what denomination are you? And I said, oh, I'm not any denomination. I'm Catholic. And she said, what? I said, well, what are you? She's not Anglican. I said, oh, so Henry VIII founded your church. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, let's take a look at um, the, the different, you know, um, Protestant churches and just see who founded them. Right. So John Calvin founded the Calvinists. Ulrich Zwingli founded the Reformed. Um, uh, Martin Luther founded the Lutherans. Charles Taze Russell founded Jehovah's Witnesses. Ellen Gould White founded the Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, John Wesley founded the, the Presbyterians. Uh, you know, Joseph Smith founded the Mormons. Uh, John Olstein founded the Lakewood Bible Church in 1982. Now his son, Joel. Osteen runs it. I mean, I mean, just name any L. Ron Hubbard Church of Scientology, you know, um, uh, Mary Baker Eddy uh, founded the Christian Science Movement. I mean, all of these different um, uh, Protestant communities can trace their origins back to a human being, to a man or a woman who founded that particular denomination. I said, but name a Protestant in the year 1000, in the year 500, in the year 100. But Jesus says three times in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 16, 18, and in Matthew 18, uh, twice there, that he came to found the church. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. And then he says later in Matthew's gospel, if you have something against your brother, work it out amongst yourselves. If, if that doesn't work, bring some witnesses. If that doesn't work, take it to the church. And if they don't listen to the church, then treat them like a, a tax collector or a Gentile. So Jesus says, my church, the church, the church. 
what church is that? Because yeah. I guess that'd be the Catholic church. I said, so we're not a denomination. We're the common denominator. But I said, but don't even ask me. Let's ask Siri. She said, <laughs> what? I said, let's see. If, so I'm going to see if we, can, if we can pick this up on the mic. So I like, for example, I said, uh, let's say, let's say this. Um, uh, Siri, who founded the Presbyterian church? Let's see if this will work here. Hey, Siri. Who founded the Presbyterian Church? The answer is John Knox. Did you hear that? Very quietly, but we got it. Yep. <laughs> okay. The answer is John Knox, right? John Knox, right. Um, yeah. Pick another one. Uh, uh, how about the... Um... Just do the Seventh-day Adventist again. Let's just try that. Okay. Hey, Siri, who founded the Seventh-day Adventists? Adventist Church has three founders, Joseph Bates, Ellen G. White, and James White. So this says has three founders, James, Joseph Bates, Ellen Gould White, and James White, right? And so you can go on like, uh, hey, Siri, who founded the Anglican Church? Charles Longley created Anglican Communion. It says Charles Langley created the Anglican Communion. Right. Because there's different branches of Anglican and Episcopal and all that. How about this? Hey, Siri, who founded the Catholic Church? Jesus Christ created Catholic Church. Oh, that, that came so through I, loud and clear as well. That yes. time. <laughs> so, so I said to her, if even Siri knows that Jesus founded the Catholic Church, why wouldn't you want to be part of the church that was founded by Jesus Christ? See? And her, her response? <laughs> No, she, she was, again, just thinking. Again, Shell-shocked. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't necessarily expecting an answer, right? Yes. But but that's that's apologetics. That's how apologetics works. Because I, I always want to leave the person thinking, you know? I, you know? Wow, I thought this, and now there was some good reason to think something else here. Now let's look at Peter. You know, it says, uh, on this rock, I will build my church, right? And everybody makes a big deal about the word, because um, his name was Simon, and he's changed to Petros, right? And so Petra um, uh, means uh, like a, 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 not a large rock, but a small rock. And they said, well, it's on the rock of Peter's faith. Well, it's not on the rock of Peter's faith because this was the guy who denied Jesus three times. Uh, <laughs> this this was the guy who, when Jesus needed him most, he he ran away from me. This is the guy that Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. When he tried to say that you're not going to die, you know, we're going to defend you, that whole kind of thing. So it was based on Peter's faith. It's a pretty, it's a pretty weak church. Yeah, you think but so? It was, <laughs> it, was, it was based on Peter himself. So even though we're not perfect, even though we're sinners, God still uses us for his, for his glory. Look at King David. King David was an adulterer and a murderer and Acts of the Apostles still refers to him as the as the uh, a man after God's own heart. Right. He's considered the greatest king in the history of Israel to the point where one of Jesus' official titles is son of David. Right. So. Yes. So. But here's the thing. You don't have to worry about the word. Was it page? Because, I mean, if, if, if you want to get technical, if they if he if they meant to call him a small rock, then he then lithos is the, the word in Greek for for a pebble. Right for a tiny rock is, is lithos in Greek, but you know, he calls them Petros. But if you don't even need that, if you just go to, um, if you go to um, John's account, right in John one forty two, it calls them Cephas. Right, Cephas is um, the English version of Kaifa in, in Aramaic, which is the language they spoke. See, so he, he called him in Greek is translated as Petros, but in Aramaic is Kaifa. Kaifa means large, massive stone, large, massive stone. And in fact, if you go to the Holy Land and you go right near the Syrian border is Caesarea Philippi. That's where Jesus took the apostles in, in Matthew 16, 18. So when Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. There is a massive, massive outcropping of rock at that place. So they had a, a, a very stunning visual uh, of what Jesus meant when he said, uh, on this rock, I'll build my church. And he, and he specifically sure. talked about 
Peter specifically. He would also give authority to the apostles two chapters later, Matthew 18, 18. But in Matthew 16, 18, he gives it specifically to Peter. Why? If you look at Isaiah 22, verse 22, it talks about um, Eliakim, right? So he, the, the, the king is going away. So he has to leave a prime minister in charge. The prime minister is the one who has the keys of the kingdom until the king gets back. The prime minister is in charge. And it says there, he, I'm, I'm giving you the keys. What you shut, uh, what you open um, shall remain open and what you shut shall be remain shut. So when he says that, uh, Peter, on this rock, I'll build my church. You know, uh, well, who, you know, what, whatever you do, you know, what uh, will be, um, you know, you know, whatever you promulgate will be, you know, that's the way it's going to be. And, and, you know, and, and same thing, in fact, even in John 20, right. Uh, on the day of the resurrection, um, Jesus does, he gives specific and direct authority to forgive sins to the apostles. Right. He says, who sins you forgive are forgiven. Who sins you retain are retained. You know, so he gives specific and direct authority to the apostles. And it's only Peter that he gives individually this specific and direct authority to act as the prime minister, uh, you know, through, you know, of course, and that's carried down through the, through the ages, through the different popes that we have in the church. But they are um, the, the, the prime ministers, if you will. They are the successors of uh, Peter, who is the successor of Christ. Christ put him in charge. Remember, Jesus says even anecdotally, once you you, you return to your faith, strengthen your brothers, right? It, it's Peter where Jesus says, if you love me, feed my sheep three times, right? To counter the three times when Peter rejected him, you know, um, and whenever it's that subgroup of apostles, it's Peter, James, and John, right? In fact, Peter's the only apostle that Jesus speaks to by himself in the entire gospels. He's the only one that Jesus speaks to alone. And so, you know, and there's many other anecdotes. St. Paul, when he finally went to meet the apostles, he met with Peter first. Then he met with the other apostles, but he met with Peter first. You know, so uh, there's a lot of things, both I think scripturally, that that clearly show that Peter um, was put in charge by Christ. And, and then, of course, through apostolic tradition, we, you know, that's been carried down from successive popes all the way down uh, to our time today. And the beauty of the way you present that is sure, the apostolic tradition is the tradition and it carries on, but the way you highlight all that was found directly in the scripture. And another yeah, yeah. big, big dispute between Catholics and not all, but a lot of most, maybe even Protestant denominations is this sola scriptura. And that is that the faith alone, and we don't need the tradition of the church. It's the faith alone that is God's revelation to us and our roadmap, if you like, through this world. And so why yeah, don't we just- The problem is in James, it says, you know, uh, the, 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 only, the only time the words faith and alone are used together is in the book of is in the book of James. Yes, right. But <laughs> and, um, yeah, I mean, I mean that's the thing. So if you're going to say faith alone, uh, see so what happened when Luther translated the Bible, he added the word alone. Yes, it's not in the Greek manuscript. That's it. It's not yeah. the original. It's not the original text at all. He added that because he um, didn't like this whole thing about sacraments and, and, and that kind of thing. So he says, only faith in Christ It's only faith in Christ. Of course, it's only faith in Christ. We believe that too, but it's not just faith alone. And the Bible proves that um, in James chapter two, in verse 24, it says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's the only place in the entire new Testament where faith and alone are together, but it's preceded by the word, not, not by faith alone. You're justified by works and not by faith alone. And what's the Protestant response to that? When that argument is put to them, what is the response that you would hear most often to that claim? Is that a, is that a silence response or have they got like no, a, so, a canned argument so what, for that? So what they say is your faith, right? Mm -hmm. And your, your works is an outcropping of your faith. Okay. Right. So here's how I respond to that. I said, look, look, I said, what if I said, I love you, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, I love you. I'm professing my faith, right? Mm -hmm. but, but, I, but I'm going out and looking at pornography. I'm cheating on my wife. I'm stealing from my employer. You know, um, I'm drinking and gambling, you know, the money that should be used for the, the, to pay for my kids' education. And, and I'm doing all that. But I said, oh, I love you, Jesus. I profess it with all my life and all my heart, how much I love you. Is that real faith? 
What do you so think, all Seth? I have to do is just have faith. <laughs> just like that. I could do all this other stuff. I just have to have faith and, and that's enough. No, it doesn't not. work, does it? Yeah. It's, 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 lip, it's lip service. Sure. You know, and the same thing. I'm doing all these wonderful things for the Lord, but you have no faith. Also, because you're doing it for the wrong reasons. You're doing it to get accolades. You're doing it for money. You're doing it for popularity. You're doing it so people can, you know, tell you how great you are. You're not doing it out of love for God. It's the same thing. So is faith. And so that causes um, James to go on to say in verse 26, for just as the body apart from the spirit is dead. So faith apart from works is dead. And I would say works apart from faith is also dead. I think they both hold true. So basically what we're demonstrating is that, yes, you can definitely rely on scripture to be inspired by God to be factual in this from this. There's, there's no error in scripture. The inerrancy of scripture is, is not in dispute, but in addition to that, there is tradition. Can you explain a little bit the tradition aspect of it and how that is not necessarily contrary to scripture, but goes with scripture hand in hand? Yeah. So um, we Catholics have what we call the deposit of faith and, and that deposit of faith holds equal weight. And so think of like, like a three-legged stool, right? In order for, if any one of the legs of the stool isn't there, the stool is going to fall over. So for us, the deposit of the faith are the three legs of the, of the stool that comprise the deposit of faith, scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterium or the teaching authority of the church. So, what we mean by tradition are those things that were handed down from Jesus to the apostles. The apostles handed on to us the things that they talk, the institutions that they established, the documents that they wrote. Um, so the teachings that they received from Christ and the practices that they implemented based on what they received from Christ uh, is part of the positive faith. And we believe that that, that, the, that the positive faith, scripture and tradition, ended with the death of the last apostle. So what the, the magisterium does, the teaching of the church, through all the ages, interprets scripture and tradition in light of what's happening in our, in our times today and all through the ages of the church. So, for example, they did not have in vitro fertilization at the time of, of, of Jesus. You know, they, they didn't have, um, you know, uh, uh, embryonic stem cell research. You know, they didn't have those things. So, so now, in light of this, the scripture and sacred tradition, the church has to interpret how do we as Catholics understand uh, how, how, uh, what we believe about these things. Are they moral? Are they, are they not moral? Do they fit with the teachings of Jesus Christ or not? And it's the, it's the teaching authority of the church that was given the authority by Christ himself in matters of faith and morals, right? In matters of faith and morals um, that, that, that genuinely interprets through, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus says that the, the, um, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The Holy Spirit is going to protect the church. Again, when the church teaches in matters of faith and morals. So there are certain things that the church teaches that, you know, about like, um, uh, like if the Pope said, it, it never rains in Australia. People said, well, he can't be the Pope because he lied. And, you know, the Pope had, you know, he's, a, he's teaching with authority. No, weather is not faith and morals. <laughs> okay. We're talking about faith and morals here. Uh, the, when we talk about the authoritative teachings of, of, uh, of the church uh, in, in these issues. And I can swing the camera around now and point out the window to prove that it definitely does rain here in Australia. Yeah. And we've got flooding <laughs> to prove it. <laughs> yeah. So, and, so about, I mean, Paul even mentioned sacred tradition too. Um, it's, uh, it's either first or uh, I think it's first Thessalonians where he talks about, um, you know, he, he asked the, the, the uh, he asked them to, to uh, trust that they had what he handed on to them either by word or by letter. Right. You know, the, the, he was to, you know, the, the, to be, to be faithful to the traditions that you have received from us either by word of, of mouth 
or by letter, right? So he gives equal weight to the, the word of mouth is the what we call the oral tradition. That's part of the, the sacred tradition that I've been talking about. Sure. Um, and so some of the tradition has been written down. That's that's the scriptures. That's the written tradition. But there are also the oral tradition that we, again, as we at Catholics give equal weight to, as does Paul in, in his letter to the Thessalonians. And, you know, there's when it comes to a lot of these Protestant arguments, they would say that you don't need a, a hierarchical body to interpret. You don't need the scriptures very clear at outlines to which I would ask the question, well, how do you then account for the tens of thousands now of different denominations in, in, in Protestantism? that all come down in a different place. Some agree here, but they disagree there, and some agree there, but they disagree there. The inconsistency of that, surely that would raise a, a question as to that claim that you don't need an, an authoritative body to to interpret the scriptures. Yeah, so, um, and that's what happens. They, they, they say that the, 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 the scriptures are perspicuous. That means they're easy uh, to understand. But you get, you're right, as soon as someone interpret something differently and the people don't agree, they start their own church. Sure. You know, and this causes fractures in the body of Christ. And Jesus prayed in, in John's gospel that they may be, they may be one as you are one father and I are one. So, so the Pope is the, is the center of authority is the, is the kind of the focus, you know, that's what hold, is the glue that holds us all together. You know, the authoritative teachings again of the, of the Pope um, and, the, and the bishops in communion with him when they teach in areas of faith and morals. And the Holy Spirit protects that teaching so that the teaching cannot be inerrant. That means the teaching cannot be against scripture or it cannot be against the sacred tradition. I think the way I, I first framed that whole phase that we've just gone through was was very mixed up and, and we kind of answered it in a mixed up sort of way as well. But what it ultimately did was it proved that it all comes back and when it all works together, it actually makes sense. And so hopefully from that, we can, we can learn that it's not always just one issue, then another issue, then another issue. All these issues, they regularly intersect and, and one leads into another. And it's, it's a bit of a, a process of logical thinking, isn't it? To actually work your way through. And it's not just one particular issue of concern. And once you've dealt with that, everything's okay. They do very much intersect with each other, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, because they're not disparate teachings. They're, they're designed to be integrated and sure. not just integrated intellectually, but integrated into the life of faith. Right. And, and, and so that's why we have catechisms. And we get criticized for having a code of canon law and catechisms and all these things. It's just an organ. It's just an organized way of teaching, understanding and interpreting um, the, the scripture and tradition in modern in, in, in a modern world. I mean, we have a billion Catholics. I mean, how do you manage a, a different situations that come up? And that's what canon law helps us to do. You know, yeah. it's the it's the law of the church that's based on scripture and tradition. Because if you look in a quote of canon law, there are many quotes from the church fathers and, and from the uh, and from the scriptures uh, in the code itself that helps us to manage. You know um, uh, how how the church functions and operates in an organized way. You know, same thing with the catechism is it's an organized, structured, complete teaching of what the church teaches and why it teaches it. You know, so the, the, so the church is very structured, very logical. And that's the way Jesus set it up. So we're just following um, in the footsteps of Christ, the way he established the church, you know, because I mean, think about it. He had in the Old Testament, you had um, you had the, the, the high priest. Right. And then you had kind of the subgroup. You know, the, the three, um, the three uh, higher. So you had Moses, you had Aaron and and, and Aaron's sons, um, uh, Nabu and the other one, the three. And then from there, they were the 12, right? Each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then from there, you had the, the, the uh, 70 judges and things like that. So same thing in the New Testament. Jesus is, is using that same structure. There's Christ and then there's Peter and there's Peter, James and John. And then there's the 12 apostles. And then you remember he sent the 72 out. So he's following that same Old Testament pattern. And so we follow the structure that, that Jesus followed. Obviously, there's more than 12 now. We got tons of, we got, you know, uh, uh, thousands of bishops now around the world. Um, and, uh, you know, but we still have one pope 
Absolutely. right? That one, that, that, that one locus and that one center of, uh, of um, unity in, in the body of Christ. That's beautiful. I think we've, we've covered that particular topic and we're, we're running a little bit short of time, but let's just cover off one more just to, sure. to give another example of how to, to apologetically respond to a claim. If I were to put this claim to you, I don't need to confess my sins to a priest. I just go straight to Jesus. I don't need the priest in the middle. Now, I've heard that claim many a time from Protestants. How would a Catholic apologist respond to that claim? Well, if they're saying that Jesus, uh, that they're saying all you got to do is confess your sins to Jesus, then Jesus must have said, all you have to do is confess your sins to me if they're based on sola scriptura. So there must be a scripture verse where Jesus says out of his own mouth, pray to me and your sins are forgiven. The problem is no verses like that in, in, in the Bible at all. You know, so, so um, now they may base it on 1 John chapter 1 where John says, you know, um, uh, uh, if, if you're, you know, if you're guilty, you have to confess your sin and, you know, God will forgive the sin that you confess. And we say, as Catholic, we say, amen. All that verse says is that in order for the sin to be forgiven, you have to confess the sin. It doesn't say how the sin is forgiven. It just says you have to confess it in order for it to be forgiven. And we say, we agree. Of course. Yeah. The scriptural basis for this is for, for the forgiveness of sins by, by priests is in John chapter 20, the evening of the resurrection, you know, 10 apostles are there 10 because Jesus hung himself. We know the first time Thomas wasn't there. Jesus comes and says, peace be with you as the father sent me. So I send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them. He said, receive the Holy spirit whose sins you forgive are forgiven, whose sins you retain are retained. So God gives them specific and direct authority in his name, in the Holy Spirit, because he breathed the Holy Spirit on them, in the Holy Spirit to forgive sins. Jesus didn't come in that room and say, um, peace be with you. Fellas, if anybody has sin, you just tell them to talk to me and I'll take care of it. I've got it. He didn't do that. He gave them authority. Now, why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus choose to do that? just like he did with setting up the one, then the three, then the 12, then the 70 or 72. He did the same thing uh, with, with the confession of sin. If you look at Leviticus chapter five, you know, the first four verses list a whole bunch of sins. And then it says, um, in order for the sin to be given, you have to confess the sin. Beautiful. So the Old Testament and the New Testament both agree in order for the sin to be given, you have to confess it. But then there's a few more words. And you have to bring a guilt offering for the sin that you have committed. It says a, a lamb or a sheep and the priest makes atonement for the sin he has committed. Who? The priest, but only God can forgive sins. That's right. Through the priest. And I, and you can, you can go verse after verse. In fact, in my first book, behold the man, I list all the scripture verses where it refers to whenever they want their sins forgiven, they had to go to the priest. Now, because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, uh, and we share in the priesthood of Christ, we don't have to go, we don't have to bring a lamb or a sheep or a goat, because he is the Lamb of God. We just bring ourselves. We bring all those things within us that separates us from God's love, and we bring that to the healing ministry of the priest. And when so when we hear from the priest, the priest says, I absolve you. He absolves in the name of Christ. The only way the priest can do that is if he was given specific and direct authority by Jesus Christ himself to forgive sins, which is, hap which is exactly what happened in John chapter 20, right? And if you look at other ancillary scriptures, in James, it says, confess your sins to one another. It says, if you, if, you know, if the person is sick, call for the priest, call for the presbytery, call for the priest and the person sin, you know, so that their sins can be forgiven. You know, we, after Jesus raised, uh, 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 healed the, the, the paralytic, remember, they lowered the guy through the roof on the stretcher. And he says, and they, they were all amazed. It says, you know, praise be God who has given such authority and such power to men. <laughs> right. So, I mean, so there's a variety of scriptures that clearly show that authority was given to forgive sins uh, to the to the apostles and, and to and to other human beings in the name of Christ, priests right? Ordained priests who are acting in the person of Christ. So Christ is forgiving the sin through the priest in fulfillment of what was going on in the Old Testament. 
So when we hear the words of the priest, we know that the sin is forgiven, that the slate is wiped clean. That's the guarantee. The beauty also of how you presented that response to that, that claim that is made is you presented it on their terms. Now, they are bound by their belief of sola scriptura. They can't think outside of that framework, but your response actually answered their claim still within that framework. So you didn't actually even have to introduce the scripture alone and, 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 and that aspect of it because you managed to answer it directly within the framework that they're currently operating in as well. So once again, it's, it's a little bit about knowing where they're coming from. And, and maybe we have to ask a few questions first before we respond to them, but knowing where they're coming from is a very powerful asset to have when it comes to formulating your response, isn't it? Yes, that's absolutely true. And, and this is why, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about, boy, if someone asked me this question, how would I respond? <laughs> right? If people say, how are you able to do that? Well, it's not just the ability to do that. It's about learning about the faith, growing in the faith and thinking about integrating that teaching into my life every day. So when you're, you know, you're someone is even, you know, hostile. And the thing is, they can yell and scream at me all they want, you know, because again, you, you don't want to get caught up in the emotion because when you do that, you don't think. So I let them yell and scream and then I give them something to think about. <laughs> and, and, and that's the key. Um, again, not embarrassing them, not trying to defeat them. It's not about triumphalism or polemics. It's about how do I get this person in front of me to want to listen to more of what I have to say, or at least at the minimum, they walk away from me thinking, not feeling, thinking. That's beautiful. And that's a great summary to, to how you responded to those a few examples that we've just worked through just now as well. So to be able to, to do it as effectively as you just presented, there is a lot of learning that needs to be done. Our, our lives should be a constant journey of forming ourselves in the faith and, and understanding more fully the reasons why we do things, how we do things, and learning and practicing how to share that with other people. So you mentioned right at the start, there are places like Catholic Answers. I really highly recommend you, you check out the, the catholic.com website. It's just a wealth of information. There are videos, um, blog articles, resources to purchase, and they're regularly running events throughout the United States and internationally as well. We, we hope to have the Catholic Answers team back here in Australia at some point in 2022. So um, we, we pray that we can we can make that happen with the way the world is at the moment, but we'll, we'll see how we go. But yeah, re, uh, um, apostolates like Catholic Answers, and of course, like what we're doing here at, at Perusia here in Australia, exactly like the work that you're doing, Deacon, and all the, the, the speaking engagements that you have, the resources that you put out, it's all in an attempt to educate the faithful, to be able to become good apologists for the faith, because the more of us that there are out there, the more ground we will make up and the quicker we'll make this ground back that for, for some reason we've given away for so long, we really do need to start making that ground back again. So I do encourage all the listeners and viewers to, to look up some of these resources, to really dive into the faith and, 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 and foster this desire to want to learn more and more about it. Just well, one I mean, reason. I want to share something with you, Mark. I mean, sure. at, at, at one of the engagements that I had just, just this week, um, one of the person saw the USB, it said Perusia on it. They said, Perusia, are those the guys that work with Robert Haddad? <laughs> and I said, yeah. I said, you go, do you know Robert? I'm like, yeah, I know Robert. He says, he's, he's probably the best apologist in Australia. He goes, oh yeah, I have, a, the lady said, I have all his books. And I said, what? It was because of the Advent pilgrimage. Right. That, you know, that, that, that you, that Perusia did in 2020. Yes. She signed up for it and got acquainted with it. And, and, and it started like looking all the resources and, the, and she fell in love with Robert Haddad's work and ordered all his books. And she has all the books and we we're talking about it. And and, uh, and you know, she, she goes, I'd love to have him over here. I said, I was working on that before COVID. Yes. Actually, we got very close. And, <laughs> yeah, we got close and we're going to work on it again. I, I've Absolutely. already talked to my to my event person here in the States. And we're going to once this whole COVID thing gets set up, we're going to we're definitely going to have the Perusia. Uh, team over here uh, so we can uh, we can return the, the, the beautiful favor. You always have us come over there. We want you guys over here to share the faith as you do so beautifully and powerfully there in Australia. Uh, we, we look forward to the opportunity when it arises. But no, thank you for sharing the story, though, because it's great to hear that sort of feedback, to hear that, that that this is making a difference, that people do 
really value what it is that all these different apostolates are doing and that that it is changing their lives. Um, one other resource that I did want to mention, and you just mentioned it a minute ago, Deacon, is the USB. And that's that's the one there with the, the Perusia label that you mentioned. But that USB contains 22 talks uh, that you've presented in various different um, uh, events and, and platforms across the world. And it's all in one device. And obviously with the, the CD format, it's, it's less and less uh, accessible to people. A lot of people don't have CD players in their cars or on their on their laptops anymore. But the, the USB, for now, you can still plug in in all these places and, and it gives you all the talks on one device and it's a really, really useful resource to have. And they are available at your website, Deacon Harold, which is deaconharold.com and you click on the store tab. And the same with the Perusia website, perusiamedia.com and click on the store tab and just search Deacon Harold USB and you'll come up with that one. And there's a few other USB presentations that we've also put together with, with Deacon Harold's resources. So I highly encourage you to go and, and check those out on, on either of those websites, depending on where you are around the world. And uh, yeah, there's plenty of other resources out there and available. So to become effective apologists, we need to learn our faith. So so hopefully what we've discussed today uh, is, a, is a step in the direction of a, of a journey that we're hopefully setting you out on to, to learn our faith more fully. Thank you so much for your time today, Deacon Harold. It's been great having you once again. It's always great to be with you, Mark. I look forward to the next time. Absolutely, as do I. And and to all our listeners and viewers, thanks for joining us today. And we, we can't wait to join you again next time on Speaking with Deacon. Thanks and God bless you.